Wonderful. Well, good morning, everyone. It is great to be with you and great to be able to open the Word with you. If you have your Bible with you, would love for you to open it now to Acts 1, 12 to 26. We, uh, we started something new last week. We are working our way through the book of Acts in a particular way. I said last Sunday this is not going to be a normal uh, walkthrough similar to what we've done in the Gospel of Mark or in First uh, and Second Corinthians. This is a little bit different. Uh, we are doing a, a more focused walkthrough. We are working through this book looking for resources, insights, corrections, and encouragements that will help us rebuild and renew the church on the other side. When the world shakes, real believers dig again the wells of our father Abraham. That's the pattern. When we get lost, for, for a Christian, back is always the way forward. We go back to the source, and we start again. That's what we're trying to do here in this series. Last week, we read the story of the ascension. Uh, the disciples had questions, and instead of answering those questions directly, Jesus actually gives them a commission He said, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After saying that, Jesus ascended into heaven. He went up and he sat down, and as we talked about last Sunday, that changes everything. Jesus is ruling and reigning right now as King of kings and Lord of lords. And in terms of the storyline in Acts 1, he's about to begin giving out gifts, first and foremost, the gift of the Holy Spirit. But before he does that, there is something that the church feels the need to do first, and we'll be reading about that today, beginning in verse 12. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 And said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, And Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship, from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, 
and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, again, we're on a scavenger hunt, right? There are a few details there. I actually, if you want to get the longer version, grab the manuscript, uh, put a little footnote in there because you're probably wondering about the interesting description about Judas. Yep. Uh, We're not covering that, though. Like I said, we're not walking through noticing absolutely everything. We're on a bit of a scavenger hunt here. We're looking for resources and supplies. And so like last week, I want to take a very straightforward approach, nothing fancy. I want to try and ask and answer five simple questions. Question number one, what is an apostle? Number two, why did there have to be 12? Number three, what about the apostle Paul? Question four, why did they make this decision by casting lots? And then number five, what does any of this have to do with us? Let's begin with the first of those five questions. What is an apostle? Sometimes I think uh, we're inclined to believe that the word disciple and apostle are roughly interchangeable, but that's not the case. Uh, Jesus had many, many disciples, not just 12. Uh, In Luke chapter 10, it mentions Jesus sending out 70 disciples on some kind of mission activity. Here in Acts chapter 1, verse 15, we've got 120 disciples. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 mentions 500 who were gathered together at a single time. So we've got lots of disciples, but not all disciples are apostles. The word disciple simply means a learner or a follower, but the word apostle means something quite a bit more than that. The Greek word apostolos originally referred to an emissary or a royal delegate. So this is a word actually that Jesus borrowed from the Roman political world. Uh, In those days, you didn't have text messages, you didn't have Zoom, uh, you didn't have uh, email, and so negotiations between powers could be very cumbersome because changes to an agreement could only change or could only travel at the speed of horseback. And so to expedite this process, kings and emperors would often appoint an apostle. An apostle, similar in a Canadian context, you can make this analogy, it's not entirely different from a governor general. It's somebody who's authorized to speak and sign on the king's behalf. That's what an apostle is. And Jesus, as I said, borrowed the word. The the word goes back to Jesus, Mark tells us, Mark 3.14. It says, and he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. So this was Jesus' idea. He intended for a select group within the larger group of disciples, for this select group to represent him and to speak on his behalf. He says that in Matthew 10, 40. He says, whoever receives you receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. So Jesus establishes a direct line from the Father to the Son to the Apostles. And that's why you don't get to say, as some Christians will say, well, I love Jesus, but, you know, I could, I could take or leave the apostles. That's not an option. And to be perfectly honest with you, I'm not sure you could be a Christian and say that. Because to be a Christian is to follow Jesus, and this was Jesus' idea. He appointed these 12 to serve as his authoritative representatives in the world. Which leads us to our second question. Why did there have to be 12? That's the main issue driving the drama of this chapter. Jesus told the apostles to go back in Jerusalem. He said in a short little bit, the Holy Spirit will fall on you, and then you'll have a mission to conduct. 
And as they were praying and as they were reading the scriptures, the church felt compelled to appoint a replacement for Judas who had apostatized. There's another Judas mentioned here. Judas was a very common name. For Judas the apostate, they felt the need to replace him so that there would be 12 apostles when the Holy Spirit fell on the day of Pentecost. Why did they feel like that? Why was the number 12 so important? Well, of course, if you're a Bible reader, I bet you have an inkling. Uh, It's important because there were originally, in the Old Testament, there were 12 sons of Jacob. There were 12 patriarchs of Israel. And so if the church is to be the renovated and restored people of God, built up upon that cornerstone of Jesus Christ, then lest that picture be marred in any way, it would be fitting for there to be 12 foundation stones in place when the gift of the Holy Spirit falls. David Peterson, for example, makes that connection, saying, it is first of all the restored Israel, represented by the 12, that receives the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. We can't have a gap in the ground floor. That's the idea. There needs to be wholeness and continuity. And those themes of wholeness and continuity are everywhere in your New Testament. You see it particularly in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 21, when the apostle John is given a vision of the holy city that descends from heaven, that is the focal point of the eternal kingdom of God on earth, he describes it this way. He says, it had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, and on the north, three gates, and on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Do you see that? That's a very apocalyptic way of describing the whole covenant community, Old Testament and New. You see the exact same emphasis in Revelation 14 where John says, then I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the lamb and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the living creatures and before the elders. So here in this vision, we got 144,000 real believers worshiping God as he is, singing a song that only they know. Well, who are they? Who's the 144,000? What's up with that number? Well, 144,000 is 12 times 12 times 1,000. It is a symbolic way of referring to the entire covenant community, Old Testament and New. And look, it says they're worshiping before the throne where the Lamb, where Jesus is, and they say, and before the elders. Well, who are they and how, how many are there? John already told us that back in Revelation 4.4. 4. He said, around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. 24, right? 12 and 12. This old 12 and 12 theme is very important in the Bible. It's a way of emphasizing wholeness and continuity. That's why there had to be 12 apostles when the Holy Spirit fell upon the church and began this work of refreshing and renewal. But after that, have you ever wondered about this? After that, the church felt no need. After Acts chapter one and Acts chapter two, the rebuilding, the restart of the covenant project, after that, the church felt absolutely no need to replace the apostles who died. 
In Acts chapter 12, when the apostle James died, there's a couple folks named James, but this is the one who's the brother of John, one of the sons of Zebedee. When he dies in Acts 12, nobody feels the need to replace him as an apostle. They don't have a meeting. They don't cast lots. They don't do anything. It's just, well, James died. All right, onwards and upwards. Let's carry on. The foundation had been laid. The spirit had been received. And so now it's onwards and upwards from here. Praise the Lord. But what about the apostle Paul? That's our third question. It gets asked a lot. We've got this 12 thing going on. It's very important, as I said. But then all of a sudden in Acts chapter 9, we get the Apostle Paul, who was not one of the 12 disciples. That's a, that's a good trivia question at a party. If you have Christian parties, you should. There you go. There's a, I got that for you. Was the Apostle Paul one of the original 12 disciples? The answer is no. He was actually not converted un, until halfway through the story of Acts. Now, it appears that he was an eyewitness to many of the key events in the life of Jesus. He was, I don't know if you ever bothered to figure this out, but Jesus and the Apostle Paul are exactly the same age. Not exactly down to the day, but, but it looks like exactly down to the year. So they were ex- exactly the same age. The Apostle Paul says that he was in Jerusalem studying at the Hebrew Harvard under the feet of Gamaliel. So he was almost certainly there. We were doing family devotions the other night, and uh, there's one of these stories in the Gospels where it says uh, a a, a young Pharisee, a well-educated young Pharisee, came and questioned Jesus. And I said to the kids, I said, I don't know if this is true. I said, so don't quote me on this. But I have always wondered in in my mind if that was the Apostle Paul. He, he was the one appointed by the Sanhedrin to investigate the Jesus problem, which suggests that he was perhaps the most acquainted of the entire group with the movement. So, based on all that, scholars generally assume that Paul was, was there for a lot of this, but he was not there as a friend or follower. He was there as a foe. That's unusual. So, what do we do with Paul? Now, the Apostle Paul, of course, was very aware of his unusual status and he never presented himself as one of the original 12. He said in Acts 15, verse 9, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Paul knew that he was a special case. Everybody knew that he was a special case. And yet he was, by the sovereign choice of God, an authentic, authoritative apostle. He had special, inscripturated authority given to him directly by the risen Christ. But it was unusual, which is why he would generally open his letters by saying, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. It was almost like he anticipated the question. Every time a letter from the apostle Paul was going to be read aloud in one of the churches, Paul knew there would be some guy, some yahoo in the back row, raising his hand saying, what do we got to listen to this turkey for? He, he was not one of the 12 apostles. And so Paul's like, yeah, I hear you, brother. I'm, I'm not, not one of the 12, but I am a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So listen up. Paul was weird. His apostleship was unexpected, but it was not entirely without biblical precedent. In the Old Testament, remember that theme of continuity that I was talking to you about? This whole symbolism and symmetry thing is way more important in the Bible than I think modern-day Western readers realize. Interesting story in Numbers 11. Remember the story? Uh, Moses, God said, uh, appoint, I want you to appoint representatives, delegates, 
from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And I'm going to take of your spirit, and I'm going to put of your spirit onto each of these representatives. And so the representatives from the 12 tribes, they gathered, and the Holy Spirit fell on them in a very powerful way, and they all began to prophesy. What's interesting is that two men who were not of that group, who had remained in the camp, also began to prophesy. And some folks were upset about that. We, we don't like it when God overflows the banks. And so Numbers eleven twenty seven to 29 says, A young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to them, Are you jealous for my sake? <laughs> would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Moses said, let's, let's not get bent out of shape here because God gives us more than we ask for. Let's just accept that as an indication of God's kindness and generosity. I think the same wisdom applies here. We needed 12 for the sake of symmetry, for the sake of the pattern, and we have 12. Wonderful. But then later on in the story, a brilliant young man named the Apostle Paul, or named Paul, was converted, and the Spirit fell very powerfully on him as well. Wonderful. God is good, and his generosity exceeds our deserts and expectations, praise the Lord. But that leaves one question from the story still on the table. Why did they make such an important decision by casting lots? Have you ever wondered about that? The Bible says they were praying, they were reading the Bible, and then, and then they were impressed by the need for a 12th apostle before they received the gift of the Holy Spirit. But the challenge was there were multiple qualified candidates, Right? The, the criteria was they, they had to have seen these things. They had to, be a, uh, they had to have encountered the risen Christ so, that, so they could speak authoritatively, first-person hand. So th- there were a number of people who, who met that criteria. And so they decided to cast lots. Now, before we get offended by that, we should remember that in the Old Testament, this was not considered a flippant practice. Right? I, it, it, would, it might appear that way. You're like, how could they like, flip a coin over something like this? But it was not understood that way. If it was done prayerfully and intentionally, Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Now, of course, you could only do this in a situation where you had multiple equally valid options. You, You can't cast lots or flip a coin to determine whether or not it's God's will for you to commit adultery. Nope. Right? Nope. We we have a verse for that. But here in this situation, we've got multiple people who met the criteria. So how do we choose? Well, you pray. You ask for God's will to be done. And then you cast lots. That's what they did. Now, it's very important for us to remember where we are in the storyline. And most of the commentaries move very quickly to point that out. So the pillar commentary, for example, says here, it is important to observe that there are no further examples of such decision-making in the New Testament. As those who are about to enjoy the benefits of the New Covenant the apostles were using a practice that was sanctioned by God, but belonged to the old era. It took place before Pentecost, when the Spirit was poured out in a way that signified a new kind of relationship between God and his people. So it happened, it was totally appropriate, but we don't have to rely on that in the church today, because we have the gift of the Holy Spirit. Thanks be to God. That leads us to our final question. What does any of this have to do with us. Uh, this section, Acts chapter 1, is basically a prelude to the story. The, the story of the church doesn't really get going until the day of Pentecost. So all of this is just set up an orientation. 
And so you wouldn't be wrong if you were wondering, why are we talking about this today? What does this have to do with us? Now, of course, we believe that there is value because 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17 is in our Bible. So we believe that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable, which means God wanted this to be in the Bible, and he knew that we would find it helpful. How so? That's what I'm trying to answer now. Let me quickly suggest three ways that this passage is helpful for us now. Number one, it gives us back the rest of our Bibles. Modern-day Christians are guilty of believing, or at least acting as though they believe, that some parts of the Bible are more inspired than others. Some people are very overt about that. They actually call themselves red-letter Christians, as if the words of Jesus in the gospel are more inspired than all the rest. But this passage is showing us the authority and usefulness of the entire Bible. In Acts chapter 1, we see the early church wrestling with the Old Testament in order to understand how to conduct their business today. We, we see the Apostle Peter, who had just spent, of course, 40 days with Jesus. Interestingly, in Luke's summary of, of that teaching period, by the way, wouldn't you give your right arm to have sat through the, the 40 days of that teaching? Luke's summary says that Jesus was teaching them how all the prophets and all the Psalms, etc., were fulfilled in him. So Peter just had a master class in biblical hermeneutics. And so now he's applying that, and he's wrestling, and he's wrestling specifically with the Psalms, which is interesting. He quotes there in Acts chapter 1, if you're looking at your Bibles, Acts chapter 1, 16 to 20, you'll see a couple snippets in uh, quotation marks. That's the, the Bible's way of telling you whenever you see a line that's got quotation marks inside of a verse or whatever, it's a way of saying he was referring to this particular text. It's from the Old Testament. So he's quoting there from Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. Psalms which were originally about the life of David. But again, Peter, having just spent 40 days in a master class on hermeneutics, understands now that everything in the Bible, even if it had an immediate application in the life of David, everything in the Old Testament ultimately lands in a climactic way in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. And so that's what he's doing. He's, he's taking these Old Testament texts and he's, he's running them through the eye of the needle that is the person and work of Christ, and he's landing them now in the early church. Isn't that fascinating? Point is, the Old Testament was the Bible of the early church. Therefore, it should be your Bible as well. They were reading the Psalms in order to figure out how to live as the followers of Jesus today. Isn't that interesting? And we see that in Acts 1, but if you don't see it there, if you happen to miss it, you'll get it again in Acts 2, right? That's, that was Peter's approach in his great sermon on the day of Pentecost. You'll see it all throughout. Here's a fun little exercise. Go through all the discussions or sermons that you meet in the book of Acts and count up how many of them for authority reference the Sermon on the Mount and how many of them for authoritative basis reference the Old Testament. It's fascinating. That's because it's not what we would expect. If you're wondering, well, what is the ratio? The ratio is everything to zero, which is not what we would expect. And yet they're constantly wrestling with the Old Testament. They're, take, they're picking up all those promises, all those threads. They're running them through the eye of the needle of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And they're landing them in the context of the first century church. 
It's absolutely incredible. It is remarkable. And what's interesting to me is there are, there have, as long as I've been in the church, there have been evangelicals who are uncomfortable with that, who actually have a bit of a gag reflex to that, who will say, well, wait, wait a second, that, 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 that prophecy, that promise was originally about, about the people of Israel, or that prophecy was originally about King David. Yes. And, and, and yet it finds its ultimate climactic fulfillment in the true Israel, Jesus Christ, and in the son of David, Jesus Christ. Listen, friends, if you're reading the Bible and getting more excited about the political future of Israel than you are about the person and work of Christ, you are reading it wrong. You're not reading it the way they read it in the early church. Do you see? That's why these passages are so important. They're showing us what Jesus showed the apostles during those 40 days, how to read the Old Testament and land it on Jesus. That's a skill we need to brush up on. So this chapter is helpful, first of all, because it gives us back the Old Testament, which, by the way, is three quarters of your Bible for fun. And again, this won't work with a phone. Won't even come close to working on a phone. Find Matthew 1 in your Bible. I'm doing this with my Bible right here. Here's Matthew 1. What is this telling you? And, at the, and here's the funny thing. At the end of my Bible, because this is like some pastor loser geek Bible, look at that. All of that right there is actually extra stuff. It's concordance, it's creeds, it's other stuff here. Here's where Revelation 22 is. So there, there's my Bible right there. What does that tell you? It tells you this is necessary. Because if you don't know how to do this, you don't know how to use three quarters of your Bible. But then also, of course, in Acts chapter 1, we're being reminded that the apostles are the authorized emissaries and spokespersons for Jesus. And that gives us back the rest of our New Testament after the red letters. When you assimilate the teaching of Acts chapter 1, what you automatically realize is that the entire Bible really ought to be written in red letters. Every single page, every single verse is of Jesus, about Jesus, for Jesus. Every single thread lands climactically on the person and work of Jesus. Thanks be to God. Can you say amen to that? Amen. All right, secondly, I'll be brief here. We had some extra stuff in the service, super exciting stuff, but I'm gonna be brief, but I do wanna show you this. I want you to understand that Acts chapter one, properly understanding it, helps us view our own pastors and preachers in proper perspective. I think that's very helpful too. Given how precisely Acts 1 defines and delimits the office of apostle, it ought to be very clear that there can be no such thing as an apostle in the church today. R.C. Sproul says helpfully here, there are no apostles in the world today because no one can meet the criteria established here in the New Testament for apostolic succession. There is no one left alive today who was an eyewitness to the events of Jesus' ministry. There was no one left alive today who had an in-flesh encounter with the risen Christ. That is not possible, and therefore, no one in the world can rightfully claim to be an apostle. Anyone who calls themselves an apostle is actually just telling you that they are biblically illiterate, and I'm thinking that biblically illiterate people should not have any authority in the house of the Lord. Amen? So our pastors and preachers are gifts from God. Paul says that in Ephesians 4. And our elders and officers rightly exercise authority in the house of God. The Bible says that in Hebrews 13, 17. But none of these people can claim apostolic authority. 
None of them can invent doctrine, and none of them can claim to be speaking in an authoritative way for Jesus. And again, anyone who attempts to claim that for themselves only indicates their ignorance of Scripture. The only authority that a pastor or an elder has in the church church is the authority that comes from standing on a clear teaching from God's Word. When I say, sister, sister, you need to break off this adulterous relationship because it is sin. Or when I say, brother, I don't care how much you don't like Prime Minister Trudeau, your business needs to be paying taxes. When I say those things, the only authority that I have is the authority that comes from having a verse behind each of those things, right? I got a verse. If I don't have a verse, I'm just a guy. But if I have a verse, then I speak with the very authority of God. So critical for us to understand this. The authority is in the word, not in the man. And that will save you and all of us from a great deal of hurt, abuse, and misunderstanding. Then lastly, this passage is helpful because it prepares us to appreciate the intimacy and guidance of the Holy Spirit. We don't have to cast lots anymore. That's low tech. That's, that's like the telegram. You know, once the iPhone was invented, no parent sending their child off to school said, be sure to send us a telegram when you get there. Right? We, we don't want a telegram now. We want FaceTime. We want the most intimate form of communication possible. And that's part of what this passage is saying. Acts chapter 1 is saying, this is the last telegram that the church will ever have to receive. After this, it's FaceTime all the time. Praise the Lord. Listen, my brothers and sisters, I don't want to be a charismatic in, in the sense of chasing after experiences or elevating subjective impulses to the level of doctrine. I've seen where that leads. I've tasted the silliness. I've sampled the distraction, and I don't want it. But I do want to be a church that believes in intimate communication with the Holy Spirit. I want to believe in the personal, loving guidance of the Lord. And I see great encouragement towards believing that in the book of Acts. Can I tell you something? In the last 40 years, the evangelical church has overreacted to the excesses of the charismatic movement. The charismatics were were over there saying that they were hearing from God all the time. So we stepped over here and we said, God's not saying anything to anybody at any time. That was an overreaction. That's not true. The scriptures themselves clearly demonstrate that the Spirit of God lives, breathes, moves, and speaks within the church. Now, I'm not talking about additional revelation. I'm not talking about new doctrine. I'm talking about guidance. As I said, the Bible itself encourages me to believe in that. In Acts chapter 13, 1 to 2, there's no new doctrine. There's no new doctrine, but there is a church that needs to know which of their pastors to send out on a mission trip because they have multiple qualified candidates, just just like we saw in Acts chapter 1. But now, instead of casting lots, they pray and the Holy Spirit speaks. Have you ever read that text? Acts 13, 1 to 2. 
Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeus, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So we've got multiple qualified preaching pastors filled with the Holy Spirit doing a great job. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Oh, church, how I want that. I don't want new revelation. I don't want your subjective impulses raised to the level of doctrine, that's for sure. But I do want to know where to turn, how to deploy limited resources, what to get involved in, and what to leave aside. And for that, we're going to need Holy Spirit guidance. Now, I want to be a church that believes in that because I really do anticipate that we are going to need that desperately in the world on the other side. Oh, God, help. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, as we begin to wade now into this first-generation story, some of us are going to pull back from what we see. We're, we're going to think it's too dangerous. There's a lot of Holy Spirit in this story, Lord, and a lot of us are going to say, well, I know where that leads. I've, I've seen churches that get excited about the Holy Spirit. I know the silliness. Some of us are going to want to, want to pull back. Lord, I pray that we would not. I pray that we would not be foolish, that we would not miss all the guardrails, all the limitations, all the wisdom. But I pray, Lord, that we would not allow the abuse of a thing to become in our minds the negation of a thing. That we would instead seek to do all things according to Scripture, things that make us uncomfortable, things that we delight in, things that we're afraid of. Lord, just to trust just to put ourselves out in the flow of the river and let it take us where it will, respecting the banks, but Lord, wanting to be taken where you would have us go. We pray that now in Jesus' name, amen.